good to be with you all this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, we will read in just a few moments verses 28 through 30. Verses 28 through 30, and uh, we'll be jumping around to several particular texts this morning, uh, but we'll start there. And uh, before we start, before we dig into the text together, this is the last sermon in our series, The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation, where we've been looking at uh, what it means when we say that God saves a person. Um, And this is our our final uh, sermon in that series. Next week, we will uh, be jumping into a series called The The Christian in Battle, where we will be unpacking uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, uh, for about six weeks or so, leading on uh, into Easter, and we'll start a, a new series there uh, come Easter. But we'll, we'll uh, be in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 uh, for a few weeks there, uh, and uh, looking forward to that. But this morning, last sermon in the unbreakable chain of salvation. If you'd like to say a word of prayer with me before we begin, let's pray. Father, we we give you thanks for the great salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ, and we thank you for applying that salvation to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit today. We give you thanks for your your gracious foreknowing and election of us. Thank you for calling us and regenerating us. Thank you for converting us and justifying us and adopting us. Thank you for sanctifying us and preserving us, and thank you for one day glorifying us. And we pray that that this series would be used to the end that we would grow in assurance of our salvation and that we would be filled with a a white-hot passion for your grace and glory going forward and being made known in the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, um, our family really likes to go hiking. And we like to go hiking in the woods. We like to, to head out to a lot of the, the different uh, metro parks in the area and county trails and all that. And just be in and walk through the woods for a little bit. And we usually do that every Saturday. We enjoy the quiet noise of nature. Uh, we enjoy the, the, the benefits of tiring our kids out. Um, we enjoy the exercise. And, and when we're out there, the kids can really be almost as loud as they want. Um, They can throw rocks and sticks and yell and run and and do all of those fun things that kids love to do and should be able to do. And really, it's just an incredible gift. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, But one of our very first steps whenever we arrive at a park wherein we we plan on hiking is we consult the map. We consult the map. And uh, we want to get a layout of the land. We want to look at the, the length of the trail. We want to see what we can expect on our hike. We want to find the little uh, marker that tells us, uh, you, you are here, where we are now. We want to know where are we now. And we want to get a sense or a firm grasp, rather, of our destination. Well, in some ways, this series has been kind of like consulting a map. We've been looking at a broad overview of what's called the order of salvation or the the chain of salvation, this unbreakable chain that's filled with these individual links. And we've looked at several of these links and and over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the the you are here marker. We've been looking at the you are here marker. We've been looking at justification and adoption and sanctification 
and perseverance. And this is where you are, Christian, right now. Right now, you stand justified and adopted before the God and Father of your salvation. Right now, you are being sanctified so that you are growing in his likeness and image. Right now, you are being preserved in order that you might come to the grand completion of your salvation. But this morning, we want to turn to look at salvation's completion. We want to turn to look at, not, not just at where we are now, not, but at our, at our destination, where we're headed. And it is glorious. It's glorious. And I should say, I should say, in, in saying it's glorious, I don't just simply mean that the place that we're headed is glorious, although that's true. We, we will live in a, a renewed world wherein all sin and all of its effects are completely gone and where there's nothing but the best days day after day after day after day. But what's more is that you, the Bible teaches that you, Christian, will be glorious yourself. Yes, you. You will be glorious. We're looking at the doctrine of glorification this morning. And we see this link mentioned explicitly in verse 30 of Romans 8. It's the last word. It shows us that all that God foreknew and predestined and called and justified are also glorified. And he speaks of it in the aorist tense, or, or in, the, in the English translation, it's the past tense. And what that indicates is that it's as good as done. However, although it's as good as done, we have yet to experience it. We've had a taste of glory in the new birth and adoption and sanctification and everything. We get a foretaste of it whenever we gather as the church and we spend, uh, when we experience genuine community in the church, we get a sense of it in sweet times with our families. Again, those hikes, we get a sense of it. But on that day, it will not be a mere foretaste of glory. It will be the fullness of glory. The word glory, of course, is a word that means weightiness, heaviness, bigness. When something or someone has glory, it means that they have, they have, um, they have like a real presence, they have gravitas, they have this awe-inspiring, reverence-producing presence. And so this, this, this word in its verb form then means to make something glorious, to make something heavy, to make something awe-inspiring, to make something reverence producing to make something glorious and this is what God has promised to do for all those who are in his son Jesus Christ C.S. Lewis put it very well when he describes this very well in in the book um, the the weight of glory he captures this well when he he says that we ought to remember that the dullest most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship He's saying that that we ought to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be glorified. And for those of us in Christ, it's not a may, it's a certainty. This is your certain future, Christian. You will one day be glorified. That's what Romans 8, 28 through 30 promises. And that's what we're going to read now. And like I said, we're going to, throughout the sermon, explore several other texts But uh, let's read this now, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, words that are perfect and true. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, the big idea that we're looking at this morning is that God will glorify his people by resurrecting them and making them like Christ. That God will glorify his people by raising them like Christ and making them like him. And he'll do that forever. I want to unpack that by looking at the concept of glorification, the questions about glorification, the help from glorification. But first, the the concept. Let's get a grasp of the doctrine. Now, you, you may or may not know this, but you confessed belief in the doctrine of glorification last week. When we said the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the body. And now, unfortunately, this doctrine has largely been uh, forgotten and thrown to the wayside, left untouched in many Christian circles today. It's like a buried treasure, but it deserves to be dug up and marveled at again. Today, many Christians think that our future hope and glorification is our souls, simply our souls, going to heaven when we die. And then, and then existing in this ethereal state up in the clouds as disembodied souls forever. And that the return of Christ means the complete destruction of this world and everything in it, and our souls going up to heaven there to live forever. But that's not the concept of glorification found in Scripture. Now you see, the Bible envisions for us a fully human, fully embodied future human existence on a completely renewed and restored earth, a physically embodied life, yet without sin and suffering and death. So let's look at several texts. First, turn over to to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 23. We're going to run through several texts here. 1 Corinthians 15 is actually one of the clearest texts that uh, we have about this doctrine. We actually preached through it uh, several years ago, just slowly walk through 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to check that out to learn more about this doctrine. But here, Paul is addressing the, the false belief of the Corinthians that there's no resurrection of the body, and he's arguing that if there's no resurrection of the body, then Christ hasn't been raised, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then there's no resurrection, and we're all stuck in our sins, and, 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 and we're hopeless. But uh, he, he's arguing that Christ is really, he's really been raised and that he's been raised as the first fruits of every one of his people's resurrection. So he says this, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So you see how Christ's resurrection is depicted as the first fruits or the beginning harvest of the resurrection of all of God's people. He's saying that just as Christ has been raised, so all of his people will be raised. And this is actually precisely what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 29, 
when he talks about Christ being the firstborn among many brothers. Now this, with this language of, of speaking of Christ as the firstborn has its parallel. If you look at Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5, these are places where Christ is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. He's talking about the resurrection, about how Christ has been rebirthed from the dead, and just as he's been rebirthed from the dead, so his people will be rebirthed from the dead. Christ is the first among them. He is the first fruits of the resurrection of the, of the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul explicitly teaches this very same thing in Philippians 3, 21 and 22. Look at what he says there. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Again, just as Christ has been raised bodily from the dead, when he returns, Christians, you will be raised bodily from the dead as well. You will receive a glorious body just like Christ's resurrected glorious body. You will be glorified just as Christ has been glorified. And of course, not only Paul, we look at the Apostle John as well. Look at 1 John 3, 2. There, the Apostle John assures God's people of our adoption, which he loves to do. It's so wonderful. But then he also reminds us of our future hope of glorification. He writes this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And of course, not only the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, the Lord Jesus explicitly teaches this doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Look at John 6, 54. The Lord Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we can look elsewhere too. We can look at the Apostle Apostle Peter. We can look at Hebrews. We can look at Revelation. We can look at a number of Old Testament texts. but, but, But you get the point. Scripture teaches the resurrection of the body. It does not teach that our final hope as Christians is existing as disembodied souls in this ethereal spiritual state but our bodies and souls being reunited on the last day to live forever as resurrected people with the resurrected Christ, being made like him in every way. The 1689 London Baptist Confession sums it up well when it puts it this way. It says, all the dead will be raised up with the very same bodies, not different ones, though they will have different qualities, their bodies will be reunited again to their souls forever. Now, Scripture We'll often refer to this, this teaching about the resurrection of the believer as they're being glorified, or as the eternal weight of glory, or as the glory that is to be revealed. And it's, it's for good reason, you see. We call it the doctrine of glorification because calling it that is more specific. You see, because Scripture actually teaches that all people, both believer and unbeliever, will be raised up from the dead at the end of the age when Christ returns. So the prophet Daniel teaches this, the book of Revelation teaches this, Jesus teaches this. Look at John 5, 28 and 29. The Lord Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of judgment. So you see, all people who have ever existed will be raised up on the last day, both believer and unbeliever. However, the unbeliever will be raised up only to be cast into the lake of fire to suffer eternal punishment there. And the believer will be glorified. The believer will be raised up to a resurrection of eternal life. The believer will be glorified. So you see how this is more specific to the particular experience of the Christian and the resurrection. And now there, there are many reasons why this concept of glorification is, is good news, but let's consider just two briefly. And I share these because there are two things I know about every single person in this room, and that's that we all suffer and we all sin. We all suffer. So, like I know for a fact that everyone in this room has suffered before, is currently suffering, and or will one day suffer in some way, shape, or form. And this is good news for those who suffer because the doctrine of glorification means the eternal defeat of all suffering for those in Christ. All sickness, all illness, all disease, all injury, all pain, all chronic. I know some of you experience terrible pain, all pain, all poverty, all all insecurity and scarcity, all mental and emotional turmoil, even death itself will be forever defeated when Christ returns. The Apostle Paul speaks these precious words of hope to us for those who suffer. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 55, for the trumpet will sound, that's about the return of Christ, the trumpet will sound when Christ returns, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And, 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 and the book of Revelation speaks of that exact same day in Revelation 20, 21, 4, like this. It says that he, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All of your tears will be wiped away, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, Christian, when you are raised up and glorified on this last day, your body will be completely freed from whatever ails it in its current form. Right now, due to the effects of the fall of Genesis 3, our bodies and our minds in this world are subject to corruption and pain and decay. And as, as a result of the events in Genesis 3, our bodies fall apart. They get sick. We experience disease. Eventually, we all die and decay and rot in the ground. But not so once you're glorified. When you're glorified, you will be immortal, imperishable, incorruptible and altogether incapable of suffering the curse on this creation will be lifted in its entirety and that includes the effects of the curse on you paul says about the lord jesus christ in romans 6 9 that christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him well, one day, because Christ has been raised from the dead, you will be too if you're in him, and you will live forever. Death, corruption, illness, injury, pain will no longer have dominion over you because you will be glorified in the same way that Christ has been glorified. This is hope for those who suffer. 
But it's also hope for those who sin, which is all of us. You see, because glorification not only means the end of suffering, but also the end of our sinning. This is what Paul is talking about. In Romans 8, 29 here, when he speaks about our our being conformed to the image of his son, being conformed to the image of Christ. He's talking about our glorification wherein we will be fully and completely made like Christ. Our sanctification will be completed. We will be entirely perfected. No more sin. No more temptation. No more warring against the passions of our fallen nature. Just perfect Christ-likeness forevermore. Don't you ever just get tired of sinning and struggling with sin? I know I do. But I have hope because I know that one day that I will sin no more. I will be made perfectly like Christ at the resurrection. The late and great R.C. Sproul used to illustrate this in in a rather clever way. He'd actually have two people from from, uh, the congregation or his audience come up, or three people actually, and have them come up and he'd uh, use them. But I'll just, I'm actually, I brought some baby toys. So I'm going to use some toys. And uh, this toy can represent the Lord Jesus. Can you all see that? Can you see that? This orange cup? Okay. So that can represent the, the Lord Jesus. And we're on a continuum here, right here. This is, a, this is a, like a spectrum, a continuum. And uh, on this side is perfect righteousness, holiness, sinlessness, perfection, utter perfection. And on this side of the continuum is, is the epitome of, of wickedness and wretchedness and sinfulness. And who would you put at the end of the spectrum except for Hitler. Um, so Hitler's the worst, right? And, and so he goes over here uh, at the other end of the spectrum here. And uh, there'd be a third figure though. And the third figure would represent the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is arguably probably the most sanctified believer in Jesus Christ to ever exist, right? The Apostle Paul is for good reason, he told us, to follow him as he, as he follows Christ, to follow his example, because the, the, the Apostle Paul lived a sanctified life. He was holy and righteous. So where would you put Paul on the spectrum? And you know, what's interesting is that in all of his kind of advances and holiness and sanctification and growth and obedience Paul made throughout his life, his actual Christ-likeness, his actual advances in Christ-likeness and away from Hitler was negligible. Here's the Apostle Paul, right here. So he's over here standing right next to Hitler. He's over here right next to Hitler. And, he's, and, and, and of course, we should say that Paul and his justification, he's on this side. Like Paul and his justification, he's right here. But Paul and his sanctification was still over here, standing right next to Hitler, just like we all are in our, sanct- in our, in our state of sanctification. Our justification, we're here. But in our sanctification, we're over here standing right next to Hitler. But the good news is that in, when it comes to glorification, the gap between our justification and our sanctification is completely changed. We are completely conformed fully to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're sinless, righteous, holy, perfected forevermore. The doctrine of glorification offers this hope for those of us who sin. That's what the doctrine of glorification holds out for sinners and for sufferers. 
the resurrection of the body, the glorification of the believer, is this scriptural concept, and it's one that we must confess and believe and look forward to in faith. And, and more could be said here, but, but for the sake of time, we need to move on. And I know that some of you guys have questions. You have questions about this. Perhaps this is a new concept for you, or perhaps you've, it's not entirely new, but, but you've been wondering about some things over time. So let's, let's address some questions. Next, look with me at the questions about glorification. So first, first question is, you know, doesn't the Bible teach that our, our bodies go into the ground, our souls go to heaven when we die, and that's our future hope as Christians. That's our future hope of, of glorification. That's our, our, our final Christian hope. Isn't that what happens in glorification? Isn't that what Scripture teaches? And this, unfortunately, is an area of understanding for many of us, and it's greatly complicated by the fact that it's based on some things that are true. So yes, when, when the Christian dies, their body goes into the ground and their soul goes to heaven. One of, the, one of the clearest texts which talks about this is 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Indeed, so you can see here, clearly in Paul's theology, that when the believer dies, he fully expects that when he dies, his body and soul would separate, his dead body would remain here and go into the ground, and his soul, just like the soul of every believer, goes to be with the Lord in heaven. And this is a, this is a glorious gift. Indeed, Paul even goes as far to call it home, because it's where Christ is and where we go to be with him when we die. We get to be with Christ. That's amazing. However, that is not the final hope or the final home. And it's, it's not the full glorification that we look forward to in the resurrection of the body. Our final hope of glorification is not merely life after death, but life after life after death. For, for this reason, theologians call this, this period between our death and our resurrection, they call it the intermediate state because it's this temporary state wherein the believer still awaits the final and full salvation that we receive at glorification. And so the great Dutch Reformed theologian, Herman Bavink, uh, perhaps one of the greatest theologians to ever live, he says this about the subject. He writes, although the believers upon their death immediately become sharers of the heavenly blessedness according to their soul, still their condition is in a certain sense a preliminary one and still an imperfect one. After all, their bodies are still in the grave and are there subject to decay. Soul and body are still separated and do not share in the eternal blessedness and union with each other. Taken as a whole, therefore, the believers in this interim period find themselves still in the state of death, just as Jesus after his death, and before his resurrection continued in that state, even though his soul had been taken up to paradise. Accordingly, the believers in that state are called those who are asleep in Christ or have died in him. Their dying is called sleeping and a seeing of corruption. All this goes to prove that the intermediate state is not yet the final state. Listen, since Christ is the perfect Savior, he is not content with the redemption of the soul but affects also the redemption of the body. And that's exactly right. Don't you see? If Christ only redeemed our souls for heaven, but let our bodies rot in the ground forevermore, he would not be a perfect and full redeemer. 
No, he not only wants to redeem us from sin, but also from all of its effects, including death. Death is the result of sin. He wants to free us from sin and all of its results in our glorification, including death. Therefore, the intermediate state in heaven is not the final hope of the Christian. Our final hope in salvation will be life lived forever as fully embodied creatures living a fully human life in glorified bodies on a glorified earth, having victory over death in Christ. Another question that comes up is what will our glorified resurrected bodies be like? And sometimes people wonder this at kind of for stupid reasons, like merely cosmetic or aesthetic reasons. Am I going to have these same hips? Want some six-pack abs? That's, no, we're not, I, I don't even know what to say to that. It's just so ridiculously silly. It shows how vain we are. But this is, this is something of a difficult question to answer because while we know some things, there's more that we don't know. So N.T. Wright once said that uh, these scriptural texts that, that tell us about our future hope are, are kind of like signs pointing into a fog, and, and, and that's true. But there are some things that we do know. There are scripture texts that speak about our, the nature of our glorified bodies. So when Paul addresses this very question uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, he talks about how there will be both continuity and discontinuity with our bodies as they are now and as they will be on that day. That there's, there's continuity and discontinuity. So in a sense, our glorified bodies will be similar to the way our bodies are right now. In fact, they'll be the, the same bodies. Just as Christ's resurrection body was the same body that was buried three days earlier, you will still be you. And you will still be recognizably you. There's continuity there. And however, you'll be way better. Like, everyone will like you. It's, it's going to be amazing. There's, there's discontinuity too. Paul even describes this, this, this discontinuity as the difference between a, a seed and a fully grown plant. So your body as it is now, when you die, will be like a seed planted in the ground. But what rises at the resurrection will be far more glorious than what was planted. It will be like a fully grown plant. The difference between a fully grown plant and a seed is significant. And so Paul says in verses 42 and 43 of 1 Corinthians 15, that what is sown, the seed that is sown, is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So it'll be you, but immortal, glorious, powerful, no longer mortal or weak, there will be continuity and discontinuity. And we can also, we don't just need to look at 1 Corinthians 15, we can look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ to see something of what our glorified bodies will be like. So remember, Christ is the first fruits. He's, he's the firstborn from the dead. And so in that sense, Christ's glorified body is actually the prototype for what he plans to do with you at the resurrection, not just you at the resurrection, but really the entire universe. Christ is the prototype for what God plans to do with the entire universe. But think about Christ's resurrection body. What does he do with his disciples after his resurrection? He walks with them, and he talks with them, and he teaches them, and he eats with them, and they recognize him, and he does some normal human activities. He eats, right? He eats food, he eats fish and bread. His disciples touch him. Thomas puts his fingers in, nail, in, in Christ's nail-scarred hands and then his side. So he's, 
fully embodied in human, but at the same time, remember what we read in Romans 6, 9? That Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. So he's still human, he's still fully human, and yet imperishable, immortal. In fact, just to say that he's more human than ever after raised from the dead. And just as, as will be after we're raised from the dead, we'll be more human than ever. So you see, while there's much that we don't know about the, the nature of our glorified bodies, we do know this. We know that we'll, we'll be the same people. You'll still be you, yet far more glorious than ever. You'll be immortal and imperishable, no longer subject to disease or decay or death. You'll be immortal. But then another question that comes up, kind of in relation to that, as we consider the resurrection of the body, is what about those bodies that are totally or, or utterly destroyed or decayed? You know, if, if, if there really is a continuity with our, our bodies as they are now, indeed, if, if, if they're the same bodies, how does that work when a body is totally destroyed or totally decayed? So, and this is a question that goes back to some of the early church fathers, like Tertullian, he, he uh, entertained quite a few of these questions, like about what happens with bodies after people are burned um, to death, or, or what happens if a Christian gets eaten by a cannibal and then becomes excrement, and then that excrement is burned. He just covers all sorts of interesting things like that. But it's a good question, and uh, it's really one that we ought to consider, because in all reality, if anyone is dead long enough, their body will turn to dust and will return to the dust of the ground from which it came. And so the question really pertains to whether or not the same material particles of the present body are the same material particles that make up the future resurrected glorified body. And I know that we are in super nerdy territory right now, but I also know that some of you guys are nerds. Like, you probably watch, uh, you know, taped VHSs of Bill Nye the Science Guy from back in the day, and you have this huge egghead, and you're wondering about this right now because you're a nerd, and so we should address it. So, I want to address it. Is the future glorified body made up of the same material particles as our present bodies as they are now? And we should say that it is entirely possible. It is entirely possible, but it's not at all required according to what Scripture teaches. So we could, conclude, we, we, we could conclude that Christ's resurrection body was made up of the same material particles as his unglorified body, but his resurrection took place only three days after he died. So it's entirely possible that God might form a person's resurrection body out of the same material particles of their current body. However, he doesn't have to do that in order for there to be substantial continuity between a person's present identity and unglorified body and their future identity and glorified body. Like, even right now, you rightly regard your present identity and your present body as the very same identity and body that you possessed when you were pre-born or newly born or when you were growing up and going through puberty or even just five years ago or even just three years ago, you consider yourself to be the same person with the same body and the same identity, don't you? Well, just in the same way, it, it, there, our, our body has gone through considerable changes and transformations and, and confer, infirmities in that amount of time. And, and, and what's more, actually, our bodies are actually composed of newly, entirely new cells every three years or so anyways, from what I understand. And so you see, there shouldn't be a problem 
with affirming that the resurrection of the believer's body is in continuity with their body as it is presently, even if it's destroyed or utterly decayed, even if it's made out of entirely new material particles or cells. So those are some of the questions that might have come to mind as we have been considering the concept and doctrine of glorification. But I want you to see that this doctrine has real implications for our lives right now. This doctrine changes us. It changes the way that we live. So look with me lastly at at the help from glorification. This is a future hope that brings real present help, and it helps us in a number of ways. The doctrine of glorification helps us be first, it helps us be resilient. It helps us be resilient. I, I think this last year has shown us something of of, of how brittle, emotionally, spiritually, mentally brittle we can be as human beings. And this is not merely true of those outside the church. We've seen it within the church too. And yet of all people, we have reason to be resilient in the face of hardship and difficulty and obstacles and suffering. Why? Because we have the promise of glorification from God. And this promise that God is working all things together to get us to that place of glorification. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 28 here. Paul says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 actually tells us what that particular good is. What is the particular good that Paul is talking about, that God is working together for us, that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn, that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the particular good that God is working together for us in Jesus Christ is our final glorification. God is sovereignly overseeing and ordering all things to bring about your final glorification, Christian. And that includes the obstacles and the hardship and the difficulty and the suffering. Those things are put in your life that you might one day share in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that this light momentary affliction is preparing us. It's, It's preparing for us. It's getting us ready for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And indeed, this internal weight of glory so outweighs the sufferings of this present life that Paul says he gladly suffers, he gladly suffers the loss of all things, that he might experience it. He says in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that's justification. And he goes on, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, like Paul, 
We can suffer loss. We can suffer hardship. We can suffer difficulty and obstacles. We can suffer. And we can suffer now with gladness and resilience because we know that whatever happens in our lives, it's all preparing us for that great day of glorification. I think, I think of the words of Frederick Nietzsche, I think, who, who once said that he who has a why can endure anyhow. You have your why. It's Christ being made like him, see, being with the glorified Christ and being made like him entirely in his glorification forevermore, being with Christ forevermore, having eternal life with a glorified Christ and a glorified body on a glorified earth forever. That's what you look forward to as a Christian and that's what everything in your life is preparing you for and, 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 and launching you towards. And along those same lines, even when you suffer loss, The doctrine of glorification helps us be content. It creates contentment. Even when Paul suffered the loss of all things, he was content. That man was untouchable. Contentment was his superpower. And contentment can be your superpower too. But you can only be content, it's only possible to be content when when you know that you have glory to look forward to. I remember several years ago, and we were in that, that sermon series on 1 Corinthians 15 that showed the world's most famous extraordinary homes or world's most extraordinary homes, something like that, came out. It was with Pierce Taylor and, um, what's her name, Carolyn Quentin. You guys ever seen this show? It's really neat. This, these houses are incredible. And it's not just about the homes. It's also about the locations that they're in, the beautiful mountain scenery, gorgeous deserts, lakefronts, just all, all these beautiful locations, just incredible. And I remember talking with this about, about, uh, about the show with Brian Drake, about it when it first came out and when we were in that series, about how when you watch it, you can start to think, man, I am really missing out here. You know, like, my house sucks. And <laughs> I, I really want to live in a place like this, or even if I can't live in a place like that, maybe I could save up and go on uh, vacation in a place like that. And of course, there's nothing particularly wrong with living in a place like that or going on vacation in a place like that. But still, you can start to feel this sense of FOMO. FOMO is a fear of missing out. I start to feel FOMO. And so Brian and I were talking about this, and, and he said something so profound. He said, that, we're cover- that what we were covering in our sermon series in that time, in 1 Corinthians 15, the doctrine of the resurrection and glorification of the believer, is really the anti-FOMO doctrine. It's the anti-FOMO doctrine. You know, Christian, you have absolutely no reason to feel like you're missing out on anything because we have eternity in glorified bodies on a glorified earth to experience the beauties of God's creation and provision and then without its corruption and subjection to sin's curse. You have eternity. You're not missing out on a thing. And so you can be content now. You don't have to set up your, your ideal existence right now. You don't have to feel FOMO. You can be content and I don't say that, that so that you'll settle for a life full of mediocrity. You're not made for mediocrity. If anything, this doctrine of glorification tells us that we're made for far more than mediocrity. But this doctrine of glorification also means that we can be content to suffer. Paul was content to suffer the loss of all things, not so that he could live a life of mediocrity, but so that he could live a life of sacrificial service to the church and to the lost elect. And that's 
why we can be content. That's why contentment is needed, and we can be content because of the doctrine of glorification. But then this also brings us next to how the doctrine of glorification helps us be sacrificial in serving. You know, it's for good reason that Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15, this chapter and about the resurrection and glorification of the believer, by saying this, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he's saying that whatever we do now for the kingdom of God, whatever sacrifices we make, whatever difficulties we endure for make, in making them, whatever work we engage in for the sake of building up the church and furthering knowledge of Christ's reign in the earth, serving in children's ministry, serving in missions, serving in hospitality and mercy on the prayer team, participating in this month of prayer that we have coming up, evangelizing our neighbors, our coworkers, raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, strengthening our marriages and the vitality of our marriages, Wh whatever it is we're doing for the sake of God's kingdom, it's not in vain. Why? Because it's all bringing results that will last forever in the age to come. Paul is saying that the very work we do now for the sake of the kingdom of God will carry on and have lasting effects in eternity future. And I know that that serving and doing the work of the Lord in these ways is not always convenient. It's not always pleasure. Sometimes, sometimes we're, we're tired. Sometimes people at church get on our nerves Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we don't want to do it. Sometimes we wonder if it's at all worth it. But the destination we're heading toward on this journey of the Christian life is totally worth it. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The doctrine of glorification helps us sacrificially. Glorification us face death with it helps us face death well you can face death well and, and, and probably many of us aren't actually thinking about death on a regular basis we're a pretty young church for the most part I venture to say the older saints among us are probably thinking about this more than the younger but whether you think about it or not here's the reality you are going to die one day you are going to die. Un unless you live to see the return of Christ, you are going to die one day. You're going to die. You're, you're going to breathe your last breath. You're going to close your eyes. Your body is going to go in the ground. Your loved ones will mourn you. Your church will bury you. And then we're going to come back here and go to the dining room in the basement and eat casserole. That's where you're headed. That's your future reality. And you can try all you want to pretend like it's not a big deal. I mean, the, the world does this all the time. You listen to Oprah or Dr. Phil, you listen to, to you know, old philosophers like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, and they're going to tell you that death is not a big deal. It's just a natural part of life, just as natural as being born. But that's a lie. That is a lie. Death is not natural. It's not as natural as being born. Death is an enemy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is an enemy, and anyone who has had close brushes with it or seen it up close with their loved ones knows that death is awful. It's a monster. It's terrible. It's an enemy. It's a formidable enemy. 
But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Death is a defeated enemy. You see, one of the major things you need to know in order to deal with death well is that your Savior has defeated it. The eternal Son of God came, and He lived the life that we should have lived, and He, lived, he died the death that we deserve to die in our place, but three days Lord, later, He rose from the dead, He beat death, He defeated death, He triumphed over death, he kicked its door down and dealt it the decisive blow, and now he stands with his foot on top of it and his hand raised in the air in victory. He has defeated death. Christ has been victorious. He defeated death, and if you are united to him by faith, your victory over death is coming too. He promises it because of Christ, because of all who he is and all that he's done, God will one day glorify you by raising you like Christ and making you like him forever. So you can face death well. You can face it with hope and resilience. You can be sacrificial in serving. You can be content in life. You can be resilient in the face of suffering. One day, your suffering, your hardship, your difficulty, your obstacles, your sin, and even death itself will be no more. And we will be with Christ and be perfectly like him. That's the good news of glorification. That's the completion of your salvation. That's where you're headed, Christian. And so, we'll close this sermon in this series in which we've looked at the eight links of salvation's unbreakable chain. We've looked at how we've been elected and called and regenerated. We've been converted, justified, adopted, sanctified, preserved, and one day glorified by the grace of God abounding to us in and through Jesus Christ. This is the salvation that Christ won for you 2,000 years ago. This is what he won for you on Calvary and in the empty tomb, and this is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives today. My hope is in prayer in this series and throughout the series has been that it would produce in us such a deep, a deeper sense of assurance. That it would produce in us a, a greater passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing him and making him known in the earth. Let's pray together to that end. Father, we give you thanks for this doctrine of glorification. We give you thanks for the entire doctrine of the order of salvation that you have given us this unbreakable chain and won it for us completely in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for applying it to our lives today by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that in this time, in the coming days and weeks and months, that you would give us such a, a solid and deep sense of assurance of our position before you, that we would move forward in our mission with confidence, knowing that we are utterly secure in Christ. And would you fill us also as we move forward in confidence with a, with a passion for your glory, a passion for your grace, a passion to make it known in the earth so that you would be known by many from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that you would receive much glory from them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.